Emmy Award-winning producer, actor, and comedian Larry Wilmore is back on the air, hosting a podcast where he weighs in on the issues of the week and interviews guests in the world of politics, entertainment, culture, sports, and beyond. Check out Larry Wilmore Black on the Air on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David! I've got an important update about our only in journalism word list. Oh, good. As you know, we've been collecting words that reporters use in stories all the time. Uh-huh. But that actual carbon-based life forms will never use in human speech. Right. So, for example, a reporter might say that a politician is embroiled in a scandal. Nobody says the word embroiled. Would you like to hear three new submissions? We got for her only in journalism word list. Sure. All right. The sports writer Rustin Dodd from The Athletic submits rebuffed. <laughs> he writes, everybody in politics is always getting rebuffed. <laughs> yes. yes. Have you ever said the word rebuffed in actual conversation? No. I, I mean, I don't think so. And I feel like any I can't even think of a way that I would use it that wouldn't be just like so embarrassing. When you, you know? and I were living together, there was constantly like, hey, did you uh, did you ask so-and-so out for a date? I don't remember you ever coming back to the apartment and going, you know, I did, but I got rebuffed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That never happened. John Walter submits a word that's kind of right on the line. How do we feel about fraught? <sighs> I am embarrassed to say that I, I think I feel like I use fraught with some regularity in my regular speech. But, but yeah, it's not... It's not a real, I'm not sure that it goes over all the time, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those words that's actually not as sort of helpful a descriptor, at least when spoken as it is in print for sure. How about this? How about the phrase potentially fraught? <laughs> that feels never, like. Never oh, said that. Never said that in my life. But that's a journalism all the time. A potentially fraught relationship. So I, mm -hmm. I think we I think we'll just we'll just tweet this slightly. Potentially fraught occurs only in journalism. This is our last nominee from Aaron Warenko, and I love this one. Grizzled. <laughs> <laughs> you often see a grizzled so-and-so, a grizzled veteran, perhaps, uh, when you're reading sports writing. Do you ever pronounce somebody as grizzled in your real life? Well, I think you just hit on it. It's always a grizzled veteran, right? Isn't this, is it, I mean, is it, this isn't a, this isn't a sort of separate tier, which is a, an adjective that only, that, that is only ever attached to a certain noun. Like the all important Iowa caucuses that we hear about every, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> every political season. Yes. Can there not be like a grizzled sea captain? 
no one else grizzled out there in the world? Yeah, sea captains, although how often do you encounter a sea captain even in um unless your unless your desk is as mine is covered with old issues of True magazine. Wow. I'm not sure that there's a <laughs> I'm not sure there's a lot of grizzled <laughs> or there's a lot of sea captains grizzled or no in your day-to-day -day, uh reading. Um but yes, uh grizzled could be could apply to some other things. I feel like I only ever see it applied to veterans. Coming up on today's show, David and I chat with CNN's Brian Stelter about the world of cable news including some new reporting he's done about Fox. All that and more in the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis and david shoemaker here along with erica cervantes david we got ourselves a guest today a guest from cable news would you like to tell the people who we got on the show today oh i get the honor please it's brian selter of cnn's reliable sources um and of you know uh twitter infamy twitter infamy oh that sounds like a potential topic to bring up today yeah we should talk to him about it are we going to ask about the Rob Schneider thing? <laughs> I think you have to, man. I got so excited when I saw the Rob Schneider thing and, and Stelter was coming. I was like, okay, well, well, I know, I know what this interview is going to be about. <laughs> we actually had Stelter on last year when he wrote this book called Hoax, which is about Fox News and Donald Trump. He has the paperback edition out now. He's done some reporting in it about what happened at Fox after the election, what happened about at Fox around January 6th. We'll get into all that. And I think some also, we should get into some stuff about what it's like to be Brian Stelter, to be kind of the media critic who becomes also the media critic that people target. Mm -hmm. So here he is, the man himself from CNN, Brian Stelter. All right, Brian, a lot of very important things to talk about, but can we start with Rob Schneider? I think I know who he is, but you're going to have to remind me. <laughs> Rob Schneider, the guy from early 90s Saturday Night Live in the Deuce Bigelow movie franchise. Yes, he used to be an actor. Yes. Okay. Ooh, <laughs> we're, we're getting spicy right off the top. I get on Twitter last week and Rob Schneider is tweeting this. The toad that is Brian Stelter commenting on Glenn Greenwald, who is arguably the most important journalist of the century is like listening to a hot dog vendor discuss Michelin star restaurants. All right, Brian, we are giving you the forum in cable <laughs> news style here. How do you respond to Rob Schneider? Wait, I don't think I, I don't think I saw this tweet and I, and I hate to disappoint him um, because I would have thought of that. That's such an incredible sentence. I wish I could come up with an equally incredible sentence combining <laughs> animals and food and okay, but let's just take it word by word. Okay. Toad. Okay, great. No objection to that. That's funny. I look like a toad. That's fine. Glenn Greenwald. Did, did you say arguably the most important journalist of the century? That was uh, Mr. Schneider's contention. Yes. What year is it? Is it still 2021? <laughs> so how about, how about listen, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, uh, certainly a groundbreaking journalist. Let's check back in, in 2099. <laughs> I hopefully we're all still with us. Okay, and then we can ask Rob Schneider who was the most important journalist of the century. Does that seem like a fair play? Does that does that work for everybody? So your argument here is he was just he was just speaking a little too early about. I think he Green. might be seventy nine years too early. Okay, but no objections about anything else. The hot dog vendor. Totally, totally. Listen, you know, ever since Fox News folks started calling me a eunuch, I think there's there's no um, 
no insult can get under my toad like skin. <laughs> but I'm really sorry that I missed Rob's insult. I would have replied on Twitter. So I'm I, I'm grateful to you for flagging it for me. You can go back and grab it after the interview. No, it, 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 I'm sure it's it's so relevant enough. What do you think he does now? Do you think he's a professional Twitterer? I believe I've seen him. I've not seen him, but seen like an ad for him at comedy clubs out here in L.A. You know, kind of. Oh, the, I'm sure it, he's hilarious. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Uh, I mean, I listen. I laugh at everything. So <laughs> that's great. Um, well, that that question actually leads me to a, another question that I had. Um, okay. You've been Glenn Greenwald's been kind of going at you lately on Twitter. Um, I have seen that. Now that I have seen. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he's also become sort of. I don't know if he's trying to move in on your corner because he's tweeting a lot about cable news ratings, um, and, and that's you know he's sort of become. Um, a media critic of a sort in his own right. But wh- what do you think just in general, you mentioned the Fox News thing, but what do you, wh- what makes you a good target for, well, some people on the right and the Glenn Greenwalds of the world and anybody that kind of has a bone to pick? What is it? What do you think that it is about where you sit in the media landscape that makes you a target? I would like to keep making jokes, but if I, if I have to be serious about it, I would say that uh, being at CNN which is, of course, institutional and, um, you know, in, in some ways, the Coca-Cola of, of news, um, you know, the, 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 the brand that's synonymous with news. I think that has something to do with it. And, and then I think uh, my beat, being a reporter who covers the media in an age where everybody's a media critic, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe makes me a little more visible and, and a little bit more of a, uh, a little bit of more of a, uh, I, I hate to use the word target because then it sounds like I'm complaining and I think it's all part of the job and I think it's all part of the gig. But um, I, I do think what's happened in the last 10 years, taking me out of it is everybody is a media critic, especially on Twitter. Everybody thinks they're a media critic. A lot of people have really insightful things to say about the media. There, There is a lot to critique and a lot to uh, improve on. And I've actually kind of evolved my thinking about my job as a result. I, you know, certainly I do share some critiques from time to time, but I, I want to view this more as a correspondent. I'm a correspondent. I'm a reporter. I'm covering the media while everybody else is commenting on it. Um, that's how I approach it. Certainly, Gun Greenwald approaches his work a different way. That's great. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think I end up you know, becoming a kind of a face or a symbol for the media, so to speak, because I'm on CNN talking about media. Does that make any sense or am I, have I totally lost it? No, it's absolutely. So you become an avatar for CNN and then it's like, aha. That's the word, avatar. And also, as you say, for media critics, aha, we got the media critic. We have exposed the media critic as being whatever they've exposed you as. Right, as, a, as, a, as a, once in a while, someone will, 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 will discover that I'm not perfect and I will say, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> the media criticism thing is fascinating to me because there was a time when that was a very, very small part of journalism, which you and I are old enough and David, too, are old enough to remember. Mm-hmm. And then I just remember the early stages of the blogosphere, number one, and then Fox News, number two, and going, oh, my gosh, media criticism is like one of their biggest subjects, maybe on certain days, their biggest subject. Do you have an answer for why that became so appealing as a way to draw eyeballs? It's absolutely true. And it wasn't always this way at Fox News and in right-wing media. Um, 
to some degree, right-wing media has always been a counter to mainstream media and exists as an alternative and presents itself that way. But Fox uh, spends far more time talking about the media than, than it did 10 years ago. And I, I think that's partly, well, this sounds so cynical. It's a 24-7 ad for Fox. The, the whole time they're bashing the media, they're also telling you, don't trust anything else. Don't turn the channel. Don't watch anything else. Don't trust those other guys, um, which is, 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 I think, very cynical and, and probably uh, net negative. Um, because if I were sitting down with you like a nutritionist, I would encourage you to get a well-balanced news diet, a well-balanced media diet that uh, might include some Fox, but would include a lot of other outlets as well. So it's a, it's a media bashing is a 24 hour ad for Fox. It's also really cheap and easy content, right? It's the, it's the cheapest and easiest form just talking about some, you know, some other channel. Uh, and, um, and it also, it, it's part of this GOP narrative of, of um, institutions, elites out to get the little guy, which, you know, if you walked inside CNN, the way where I am right now, I'm at the CNN office in New York, and you walked around, you know, you just see a bunch of guys and, and a bunch of men and women just trying their best to tell you what the news is. And, you know, there's no there's no shadowy there's no shadowy conspiracy behind the scenes. But that is the the claim. That is the narrative. That's the storyline Fox presents. And Brian does have his uh, Zoom cam on just for for people listening to this. So we there isn't true. There is no shadowy conspiracy behind him uh, in his office. Right. <laughs> no. Now. And I'm and I'm in my T-shirt and shorts because. There's not a lot of people here yet because the building is gradually reopening. Uh, we're in this like kind of soft reopening of the building phase, and it's really good to see everybody again. And I, I guess I kind of love the view that um, that if you actually work in one of these media outlets, then you know better than the crazy theories out there. Like, you know, all the sort of um, what's what's the old thing about uh uh, people are, you know, people are too incompetent to pull off a grand conspiracy. Isn't that the best argument against UFOs or the best <laughs> argument against uh, secret uh, government cover-ups of UFOs? Yeah, you can't keep a secret to save your life. I think that's kind of how newsrooms are. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. Uh, the The paperback edition of your book just came out, um, and we want to get into a little bit of the details. But you know, with the way you just with the way you just answered that question. Uh-oh. that there would be somebody out there on the internet saying, well, if he wants to say Fox has this narrative, then what does it say that the media critic on CNN is writing a whole book about Fox being full of it? Oh, good question. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying I would say that, certainly not, but, you know, I mean, this is... I dig it. it, it's, it. I mean, <laughs> so, you're write, so, so you write a whole book about Fox News... I think most of the people listening to this podcast would say that's a pretty easy target, but like, does it, do you feel that there's any conflict there? How do you go about writing the book in such a way that, that there isn't one? Uh, I, I think there are two answers to that question. I think the first answer is um, I think Fox is a worthwhile subject because it's bigger than a television network. It's bigger than a media uh, enterprise. It is for its fans almost a way of life. Um, certainly for President Trump, it was his guiding star. It was his, it was his viewfinder. Like I, I think of Fox News as being like the glasses that Donald Trump would have worn if he had ever admitted he couldn't see well, um, and worn them in public. It was his way of seeing the whole entire world. And uh, for that reason, I think Fox was was so important to study and understand, especially in the Trump years. Now it, it's important for other reasons, but that was my main uh, driving reason for writing the book. 
Fox was changing. Fox was informing and misinforming Trump. And that was a story that was that was bigger than like, hey, I'm going to go write a book about a TV channel that happens to be on the cable dial close to CNN. Right. Um, but I think what you're raising is, is significant. And I thought about it a lot when I was working on this and my approach to um, to taking that on is was hopefully and I, I hope I succeeded, but I certainly tried to be really transparent about it and honest in the writing. In other words, to say in the book, hey, look, I, you know, I know I'm this guy on CNN who wears this navy blue blazer and does this and that. And, you know, I know these folks at Fox and I know how they think because I think, you know, I, I get the same ratings data they do. Right. I think that in some ways, my closeness to the story allowed me to tell it in a much more honest, I think, way. Um, so let me put it to you this way. When I worked at the New York Times covering TV, covering Fox and CNN, I thought I understand. I thought I understood ratings and I, and mm-hmm. I understood ratings to some degree, but not in a gut um, emotional way that I understand them now. Uh, so when I was out talking with producers and hosts at Fox, trying to get to know them better, trying to source up for this book, I felt like I connected to people because I'm on television and have that experience. So in a way, working for a channel that, you know, whether, whether it's a rival or not, we, yeah, we do live in the same part of the cable television world. I think it benefited my work as opposed to um, hurting it. The best way to write about cable news hosts may be to be a cable news host <laughs> yourself. You got me. I think that's the secret. Oh, I love it. All right. More from Brian Stelter in a second. But David, let us pause to do the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Uh, David, from the world of sports, or I guess sports gimmicks, there was a pretty disappointing Floyd Mayweather, Logan Paul, exhibition boxing match last night mm-hmm. i guess it went the full eight rounds there was no scorecard per the rules so we just did eight rounds and then we said okay well that was an exhibition boxing match that everybody paid for <laughs> it was an overworked twitter joke to write i didn't even pay for the fight and i feel like i got scammed <laughs> thanks to ty yeager for that one david we missed this story last month guy fietti the star of a retired press box bit signed a new contract with the Food Network that will pay him a reported $80 million. $80 million. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, Guy Fieri will be taking the Food Network to the finals. Uh, (laughs) Thanks to Kyle's beard. Let's see, that crosses. You get extra points when you cross anything in pop culture with the NBA here at the Ringer. And finally, I must ask this. Did you see the conspiracy theory about Donald Trump's zipper over the weekend no donald trump gave a speech in north carolina i'm sure people saw highlights of that (laughs) this was later strenuously debunked by some poor person at snopes there were camera shots that made it look like trump had no zipper on his (laughs) trademark blue pants oh that's better than where i thought you were going with that okay go ahead well yeah it just was kind of an odd flat front Mm -hmm. i don't know why it would be a conspiracy that Trump would not have a zipper. I don't know who would be conspiring to deprive Trump of a zipper or <laughs> what, what the end game there was, but it was an overworked Twitter joke to write. Donald Trump has evidently been put on the no fly list. <laughs> uh, that's great. Thanks to Chris Lazo. If you came up with a Trump conspiracy, that was even too much for me and David. 
Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. All right, more from Brian Stelton. In this paperback edition, we had you on last September. You talked about Fox News and Trump and all those other matters up to that point. You then update this through the election. And you outlined something that happened after the election, which was Fox eventually said that Joe Biden had won the election. I believe this was on Saturday, November 7th. Newsmax and OAN are not so eager to say that Joe Biden has won the election. So Fox suffers this very, very this substantial ratings dip, I think we could say. Right. How does Fox fight back? What happens inside the network at that point? It is an amazing story, and it's why I went a little overboard writing this paperback. I added like 20,000 words. It was way more than I was supposed to. Uh, and I'm grateful to the, the editor and the publisher for letting me publish all of it. Um, but I had never seen anything happen like this in television history before. I don't think it's ever happened in, in sports. I don't think it's ever happened in entertainment. There was a day when Newsmax um, had 10 times the audience it had the week before. Like, it, you know, pre-election day, they were getting 50,000 viewers on a good day, 100,000 viewers on a great day. After the election, half a million, almost a million viewers. I had never seen it happen. 10x growth, 1,000% ratings growth. You know, it was, you, you see doubling, and that's an amazing thing in television. This was 10 times growth. So it's true. that Fox that Activist Trump base that used to be the Fox base, flood Fox. It happened on Saturday and Sunday. And by Monday, you could see it in the numbers. Fox's problem was that the audience now had somewhere else to go. They didn't have somewhere else to go, you know, when Mitt Romney lost in 2012, although that wasn't as much of a gut punch as Trump losing. Um, Fox lost its monopoly on right-wing TV between November 3rd and November 7th of what we, what we now think of as election week. That's when Fox lost its monopoly on right-wing TV. 
Newsmax was available. It was an option. One America News was an option. Greg Kelly on, on Newsmax was refusing to call Biden president-elect. So it was this amazing moment. Newsmax's unreality found an audience. Now, your, your question is, what did Fox do in response? Uh, they ran as fast as they could to the right, further to the right. Um, there were a couple of really um, obvious things that they did. Um, they were watching Newsmax to see what guests were coming on Newsmax. And then they were basically saying to those guests, you got to do us first. You can't go on Newsmax. You know, you got you to come back to Fox, um, trying to get the guests to come back home. But to get the viewers to come back home, uh, fewer Democrats on the air, fewer news reports, more Tucker Carlson, more hard right opinion. It, it, it happened day by day. So it was it felt gradual. But when you look back six months later, it was really obvious. It was really clear. And the result is a network that is much further to the right um, than it was six months ago. And I think the result is Fox's, um, if you think about a Venn diagram, uh, picture in one circle, the American mainstream news media, you know, I'm thinking about like the Associated Press and NBC and ESPN and CNN. And then you have on the other side, Fox News, there's less overlap. We are covering fewer of the same stories. We are, um, uh, it, it, it's Fox is just increasingly in its own world because it's moved further to the right. But guys, it works. This this worked. This the ratings came back. The audience came back. Newsmax has sagged. Fox has risen. Fox is is back to number one on any typical day. So it worked. So do you feel like when you say that Fox ran to the right? I mean, I, the way you described it made a lot of sense. But is it, would you say during the Trump years they were? further to the right than they had been in the past or would you oh, kind yes. of defi or define them <laughs> yes. as just being more pro-Trump than any sort of political ideology? This is the dilemma for, for me as a writer. And I'm, and I'm not going to claim that I'm, I'm great at this. Uh, I, what I, I find myself trying to figure out how to, to describe this you know, slow, but steady shift, this March mm -hmm. that's happened. Right. So the Fox of 2021 is further to the right than the Fox of 2020 but compared to 2015, you know, it's it's a mile down the road for the delivery. Maybe maybe I should have written that in the book. <laughs> I mean, one, one way I did write it in the book, I, I said it reminded me of a drunken night out when you've got a you know an empty pint glass in your hand and you're you're in that point where you're making that fateful decision, right? Like, do you settle your tab, call an Uber, sober up, go home? That's what you should do, right? That's what the responsible voice in your head tells you to do. Don't order another beer you know that you're at that point where you're going to regret it in the morning. But, you know, the, the booze beckons you to order more. Like, we, we, we've all been there. Like, the, the, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, we'll want to get another round. I feel like Fox not only ordered another beer, they ordered shots for the entire bar. Um, like, this, it, it's a massive hangover as a result of, of this election. And, and it's not just me saying that. It's, it's folks inside the network. Uh, I had a commentator, an on-air commentator say to me, we turned so far right, we went crazy. Um, and look, obviously, that's a dissenting voice inside Fox. A lot of people at the network are happy about where things are today. But I think it's this hangover thing. I think it's the um, uh, have another beer, or go home at the end of the night, and they, they go for that next beer. Which brings us to January 6th. Speaking of the next beer and the siege of the U.S. Capitol, I think there was a pretty widespread opinion on this podcast on some of the things you wrote on just a lot from a lot of people that, hey, Fox News and the things that were being said on the air there 
were one of the many elements that got us to January 6th. When you talk to people inside Fox, was there a reckoning? Was that idea? Were they upset? Were they worried? How did they feel about that? Um, You know, I wish I could survey every staffer there, uh, but to the extent that I know and my goal, of course, is to talk to people in different cities, on different shows, in different places, in different ranks of the network, high, low, in between. Uh, I think the way I would sum it up is there was a minority that that was disturbed, that wondered about culpability, that felt shame. I had a staffer, a veteran staffer, text me the morning of January 7th and say, what have we done? And that that is certainly a real view that was inside Fox but a minority view. And then there were a lot of other folks who did not look backwards and did not uh, uh, take stock and did not feel any, any amount of, of involvement or, um, I mean, again, culpability is a strong word and a big word, but did not feel any culpability. I guess I think if, if we look back through the course of history, do you get to the point of an insurrection without Fox News for 20 years? And I don't know how you can possibly get to that point without Fox News. Fox is, of course, one of many factors, um, and maybe without a Fox News, maybe something else would have come up in its place to lead to it. But you know, th- this environment of right-wing rage, TV and radio, this environment of choose-your-own news, conspiracy theory thinking, the ability to have a mass delusion, which I think is really what January 6th was, a mass delusion. Um, I don't know how we could have gotten there without Rupert Murdoch launching Fox. Um, but what I find in television news is very, very infrequently, much of an appetite to look backwards, right? It, you got to put on next day's show. You got to get out there and do the show again. You got to get out there and get the audience. Um, I suppose, you know, if, if your political project for four years was to defend a president who then lost re-election, who failed to win re-election, you might wonder, should we do things differently? Should should um, Maybe we shouldn't put on so many right-wing screamers. Maybe we shouldn't out so much propaganda but you know look every every everything that's happened since november 3rd has been to, to do more of that to, to go further into trumpism further the propaganda lane um there's very little self-reflection that i've seen with all that said brian can i get you to solve a mystery that dave and i have been uh interested in as long as it's not about rob schneider it's not about <laughs> rob schneider but but in the same content universe why did fox get rid of <laughs> lou dobbs so this is a little bit of a mystery, uh, and and the people who buy the paperback will see that there, I have a theory about it. But but that uh, Lou Dobbs has never said he's never he's never explained it himself, and neither has Suzanne Scott, the head of Fox News Media. Um, I, I think the theory goes like this: um, these lawsuits were bearing down on Fox. Lou Dobbs was one of the promoters of the big lie that led to these lawsuits. You know, his, his program was full of, of of this voter fraud nonsense that led to the lawsuits, but. So, so, so then they fire him one day after they, well, technically they, so you guys know that the language of television works, right? They pay or played him. So they're paying him not to play. They're paying him to sit on the bench till the end of his contract, which means they didn't fire him. They canceled his show and uh, kept him off TV, which that's uh, how it works in TV news. Sometimes that's within their rights. They can pay or play you. Uh, and, and so he's off in, in a witness protection program until his contract expires. So why did they do it? Well, they did it one day after this lawsuit. So obviously it's because of the lawsuit, right? Well, I, here's what I think. I think he was the pain in the butt. I think he was a, a, a pain in the butt for management. He had been for a while. I think they uh, already were looking around saying, this guy is this program sh- uh, advertising base is weak. 
you know, he's, he's, he's not, he's not making, maybe not making money for the network. Uh, maybe he, uh, and also if you throw one overboard, as NPR's David Volkenflik has said, if you throw one overboard, uh, others might learn from that. Um, that I think might've been the story of what was happening that, you know, there are some folks inside Fox that swear he was going to be dismissed even before the lawsuits. So, you know, I, I think the answer is it's complicated. It always is. But if you are not, um, if you, if you have a reputation as being a pain and annoyance, um, you know, uh, you know, in the eyes of management, you know, these things happen sometimes. Uh, in your last answer, you mentioned the Murdochs, you mentioned Suzanne Scott. Um, when people, I, I guess the Murdochs are, hold, a, you know, obviously have a, hold an incredible place in the imagination of anybody that pays attention to this stuff. But when we, or when anybody else hears about these things going on, Ludov's getting fired, or, or, or I, th- I think more broadly, the sort of political shifts, the ideological decisions that get made behind the scenes, do we ever read the tea leaves correctly? I mean, do we ever, like, is there, is this a, is this a long-term political campaign on the part of the Murdoch family, or is this all just sort of capitalism in the way that you describe their, you know, lurch to the right when, when, when faced with competition? I mean, is, is, is this a, to what degree is this a political project, Fox News that being, and, 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 you know, you could lump in other things and how, to what degree is it just a, a, a capitalist one? The first thing that comes to my mind is it is prime. It is, it is first and foremost, a capitalist project. I think I think that that is where I would come down on the answer, um, but it's a capitalist project that does advance a political agenda and does come with certain perks when your favorite politicians are in power, and that's uh, appealing and important and part of the story. Uh, and um, but I think it's primarily for the Murdochs a business, a, a profitable enterprise. Um, something that he's hand, he's he's actually largely hands off a lot of the time, which I would argue is an part of the problem. But uh, you know, people say to me, you know, why, why is he not reining in the talent? Well, he prides himself on giving the talent autonomy. Uh, autonomy is a great thing in, in in the media business, as long as you're not uh, promoting dangerous anti-vaccination theories or encouraging people to believe lies that cause them to attack the capital. You know, that there's you know, I'm all for autonomy, uh, but there's a rudderlessness. There's a lack of accountability that is a, is a problem that comes from the Murdochs. But here's here's what I think. Um, here's what I try to remember about Rupert. You know, going on ninety years old. You know, um, he's got he's got you know daughters graduating from 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 my I think it's either high, it must be high school. It's not college yet. You know, he's got he has his you know lovely family. Of course, he's a lot of drama within the family with James Murdoch. You know, leaving the family business, but you know, big family, lots going on, um, lots of interests, lots of newspapers. So what I'm trying to get at is, when I see something, you know, uh, outrageous happen on Fox News, and I think to myself, well, what's the internal reaction going to be? Are advertisers going to pull out? Is the company going to do anything? Is there going to be fallout from this? Rupert's just sitting back reading the Wall Street Journal and and hanging out with his with his family. You know, like there's there's a disconnect between what how I think um, folks might imagine the places run or not run and how it actually works. It reminds me of something that the media CEO, not not CNN, not Fox, said to me a long time ago when I asked about their news operation. They said to me, I just don't want them to embarrass me. 
Like they can do whatever they want. They can, they can do this, you know, just keep making money and don't embarrass me. You know, I'm not telling them what to say. I'm not canceling certain guests. I'm not messing with their editorial product. I just don't want them to embarrass me. And uh, of course, what are you going to say to that? You're going to say, well, doesn't Fox News embarrass Rupert Murdoch? Well, clearly it does not. And, uh, you know, his fingerprints are not on the, the minute by minute coverage. His fingerprints might be on the themes, right? Big tech reckoning, you know, censorship, cancel culture. You know, his fingerprints are on the themes, but uh, he's, he, um, you know, he, he, he wants it to make record profits, expand, and, uh, and advance a GOP agenda, in, I think, in that order. Couple uh, quick questions about your own network, Brian. Before we let you go, Trump was sure. a scramble the Jets moment for cable news. How has CNN changed after Trump? Ask me again in a year. But what I've noticed on reliable sources is, I always kind of knew what the lead story was going to be on Sunday. There was there was always an obvious lead story in the Trump years, almost always. Biden has changed that. I think in a way that's quite uh, refreshing. There's certainly no shortage of news with Biden, um, but. I feel a little more free to lead with X, Y, or Z because we don't have a president trying to um, uh, destroy American news outlets. So there's a little bit more of a, I feel a little bit more of a range of stories that I can be <laughs> thinking about on Sunday morning. But that's that's me on Sunday mornings. I think more broadly that that range is true. There, you know, We're seeing that. And uh, there's obviously a different tempo, a different pace to the news cycle in a way that results in um, folks uh, spending a little bit less time obsessing over news. But, uh, you know, I remember 2014, I remember 2015, I remember the pre-Trump news cycle, and this feels a lot, a lot like that to me. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but your interview with Jen Psaki, who is uh, the White House press secretary, uh, got a lot of attention um, this might bring us a little bit full circle to some of the detractors that we talked about at the top of the interview, but uh, you interviewed her yesterday on your show, obviously. I, I think there's always going to be a little bit of a disconnect um, when we're talking about a, well, you said media critics, not exactly what you are anymore, but a media reporter talking to a press secretary for the president. This is, yeah. uh, this is somewhere between inside baseball and, you know, outside of the ballpark. I'm not sure which one, but it, <laughs> that's okay. But like, how, what is, what what are you trying to when, when you book this interview? What do yeah. you go in? What what is the goal? And do you, and and do you feel like you accomplished it yesterday? Oh, I lo I love that. That's the way you frame a question. What is the goal? Because I think that's what um, sometimes is not thought about uh, by on on um, on the receiving end. Um, so so um, let me summarize the criticism for you in a way that you're, you're trying to be kind. I'll summarize it in a tougher way. P people are saying you're you're too uh, the people on the right are saying you're too soft on her. You're you're too soft. And then I got uh, some some liberals saying. Why are you pestering her about press conferences? Biden doesn't owe you anything. So let me deal with the right wing criticism because that's the louder the louder side. Um, my point of view uh, is that I'm not uh, uh, anchoring State of the Union or the Situation Room. So I'm not interviewing about policy or news of day. Certainly, you know, sometimes I would bring that up, and, and if I have the chance, I would. And if I had been able to tape the interview with her on Saturday instead of Friday. I would have asked her about the New York Times gag order revelation because that was shocking and disturbing. But that hadn't come out yet when I interviewed her or taped her on Friday. So my point of view is uh, I'm not doing a News of Day interview because that's what my colleagues do much better than I would. Uh, so I want to do much more of a uh, setback, personal interview, 
talk more big picture about Biden's relationship with the press. And as a result, the you know, right wingers on Fox are coming at me saying I'm too soft and I'm too gentle. Uh, but I, I thought was the more interesting criticism was from the left, from people trolling me because I asked, why isn't Biden having more press conferences? Why isn't he more accessible to the press? And the reaction from, from some folks on the left is, you know, that, that's an idiotic question. You don't deserve, you, you know, you don't need, you know, Trump was, Trump was evil. You, you don't, you don't need access to Biden. Biden's like, there was a lot of blowback. I thought the more interesting blowback was from that side. Um, there is a, there is a, um, there is a sensitivity to, to questions about Biden's availability that I was not expecting that I was, that I was struck by. So, so I think the answer to what is your, what is the goal of an interview like that is, can we take a breath, have a bigger picture conversation and, um, and not deal with news of day. But the re, but the consequence of that choice as an interviewer is people who only watch clips of the interview on Twitter are going to be dissatisfied. And people who only watch clips of the interview on Twitter are not going to understand my goal and not give it a chance, not give it a shot. And that's unfortunately a consequence of our decontextualized media landscape, right? That clips and moments and outtakes or uh, people's hot takes about an interview actually get consumed instead of the product itself. So really what they're yelling about, if I'm being honest, is they're not yelling about the interview. They're yelling about a, a byproduct, almost like a, does that make sense? They're, they're reacting to a deconstructed, decontextualized thing that provides a source of rage or anger or hostility. Sure. And that's the point where I turn off my Twitter mentions and I don't look for the rest of the day because <laughs> there's no way I'm going to uh, uh, persuade um, Joe Blow 2513821 that he should watch the entire interview that's not going to happen. I'm realistic about that. I would say that's fair enough. I would say also though, that cable news hosts do benefit from little Twitter clips all the time. Anderson that's Cooper's true. facial that's expressions, Jake Tapper busting some Republican, you know, house member who's on there, you know, about the big lie or whatever, you know, it does go both ways. I agree. Yes, was, that is a very good point. And, I, and I'm, and I'm glad you said that. I should be grateful for Snapstream and all those other <laughs> services that let me post uh, short clips to Twitter. Uh, and, uh, so I am part of the problem as I am also trying to be part of the solution. And then the sun goes around the earth again and again and again. And we all, we all hopefully are going to live till 2099 because oh, I am committed to that plan. We need time. to revisit. We should have a poll at the end of the century. Who was the most influential journalist of the century? And, uh, I can just tell you, it's not going to be me. So I'm out of the running. Oh, let's let's see if uh, Glenn gets to number one, as uh, Rob Schneider predicted. <laughs> Anything's possible. Brian Stelter, paperback edition of Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of the Truth is out right now. Brian, thanks for coming on the Press Box again. Thank you. <laughs> All right, David. Man, I, I so many things there. Uh, I want to uh, I want to post game with you. I did like the part where he said about how in order to be in order to truly understand cable news and cable news hosts, you it really helpful to be a cable news host. Mm -hmm. I feel like now I have to host an opinion show on ESPN in the morning and argue with Max Kellerman to truly understand, <laughs> to be able to write about sports television. Like I'm not going to really fully understand until that moment. 
Yeah. Well, it's like if we interview other podcasters, there's some point of connection there. You know, we can we break the ice by complaining about task cams or whatever. You know, if there's there's got to be a little bit of common ground. <laughs> and the party said about interviews out of context. It really is funny because it does it does make, you know, burnish the star of the cable news host and then make yep. the cable news host into the piñata at the same time. Yes, I, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's what you said is correct. There the, the the news clips on Twitter are valuable. Um, you know, I I I can't help but just immediately think of the last thing I was looking at before we came on the air, which was a a tweet that had um, a, a brief clip of the Floyd Mayweather Logan Paul fight, and uh, it, it the tweet was just like implying or stating that that Mayweather at some point during the fight knocked Paul out and then held him up to keep the fight going, you know, just to keep because this is totally a sham. And the clip that was attached was, I was, I was, I had already copied the URL to put it into Ringer or Slack, and then of course I read a few comments down where somebody had the full clip. And it was, you know, what I was watching was totally false, right? Yeah, um, it was Donald Trump zipper. Exactly, it was a Don, it was a Donald Trump. We should maybe Donald Trump zipper should be the new milkshake duck. But Donald Trump zipper, <laughs> but I feel like yeah, hosts get. I mean, people on TV get Donald Trump zippered a lot, and it's. Um, I think it kind of comes with the territory. Brian f- seemed um, kind of surprisingly well adjusted about the whole thing. Now it's not a reflection on him, but man, he lives through a lot of it. He strikes me as that. Uh, let us say there are other cable news hosts in the world, I think, who are uh, reading their mentions and taking taking things a bit more personally. I always think of Brian as at least fairly zen about that. Maybe that's because he thinks of himself as a reporter more than as an opinion guy. Yeah, I think so, too. He's. I mean, listen, um, part of what makes him work on television, you know, part of what kind of give, allows him to, to stand out uh, is that he's is that he's sort of more, I mean, he's not, he's, he's less airbrushed, you know, he's not like a, like a super trained on air personality. He came from the print journalism world. And, um, I don't know if that makes him more well adjusted, but it certainly seems like it, 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 you know, he does seem, he does seem by personality to be separate from, or, you know, purely by disposition to be separate from the rest of the, some, or a lot of the goings on in the cable news world, uh, you know, which I'm sure helps his reporting too. He was wearing shorts. And a t-shirt, yeah. He was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. You've heard of Casual Friday. This is gradual reopening Monday. <laughs> you just come like you're about ready to get on the Peloton. I love oh that. Oh, my gosh. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses the Strained Pun Headline. Yeah. Friday's headline about a theater that became a craft beer venue was the Taming of the Brew. We got a vote for ales well that ends well, which is pretty good considering that's a happy outcome for the theater turned craft beer venue. (laughs) Today's headline, David, comes from my wife. My wife. She was sitting there reading the (laughs) New York Times on Sunday morning and she turns to me and said, hey, did you see this pun right here on the front page? Uh, She probably did not imagine her life was someday going to be turning to her husband and say, hey, did you see this pun here in the paper? Maybe you could use that on your podcast. I will read you the subhead that was on the front page of Sunday's New York Times. Quote, after nearly a century, Karistan's North Carolina factory closed, marking the end of the wonder rug of America. Okay, the factory in North Carolina, though that's not particularly important, important, Mm -hmm. is no longer making the rugs. There will be no more rugs here. 
What was the New York Times' strained pun headline? A factory, a rug factory is closed. Yes. Um, rug, uh, um, a farewell, uh, goodbye, um, the end of a, uh, end of an era, the end of, um, Let me give you a little help here. What is a machine or apparatus that one uses to- Oh, okay. Looming, looming demise, looming, uh, the, uh, the end is looming. The, um, the looms are, are, aren't humming anymore. The looms are shut down. There's, there is no noise coming from the looms. The quiet looms? Well, I have no idea. Silent loom, mm. si- uh, mm-hmm, silent, mm-hmm. silent loom. Si- what is silence? the pun? The silence? Silence of the looms. Oh gosh. Yes. Silence of the looms. Oh my God. That's terrible. I, my, I was terrible. It's a great headline. Thanks to my wife and the New York Times for that. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We are back Friday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. Later, Brian.